Chapter 9 of Confessions of a Tradesman by Frank T. Bowen. This is a LibriVox recording. Read by Wayne Cook. In Harness. Now, indeed, I began to realize, in spite of what I so often read in the daily papers, something of the optimistic pushfulness of the commercial traveler. The shop had not been open very long when they began to call and such was their power of persuasion, so eager were they to sell me something, however little, so as to get a foot in, as it were, that I often felt grateful that I was away all day. I left concise orders that nothing was to be bought, but on the occasions when I happened to be home, I felt so soft and yielding in the hands of these persistent pushers of their employer's wares, that I could not but pity my wife, charged as she was with the duty of saying no to men who refused to recognize such a word as belonging to any language. They were so polite, so gentlemanly, so pathetic, and so well informed. They seemed to talk upon any subject, although they had a marvelous knack of twisting any topic round to the one that they were interested in. The luxuriance and fruitfulness of their imaginations, too, always impressed me and although I always deprecated them wasting their time over so impecunious a tradesman as I was, I had a good deal of joy in their company, bright and cheerful as it always was. But I have also to confess that they were dangerous counsellors. Their pleading for small orders, just one line, their utter indifference to the payment, making it so fatally easy to go into debt, I look back upon now with horror." And yet I suppose it is of the essence of business, this hopeful, airy outlook upon life. I now see that I might have stocked my shop with the choicest products, might have had it glow again, and—but never mind, uh, that comes later. I am not, never was, a strong-minded person, except in certain very restricted directions. I am exceedingly prone to take the line of least resistance." but I do feel just a little puffed up with the knowledge that I was so often able to say no and stick to it, in spite of all the blandishments of all those delightful drummers. I had been about a year in the shop when I realized that I could no longer expect to do any good whatsoever with the fancy department. The islanders had obviously no aspirations in the direction of cruel work, applique, or any other form of art embroidery or if they had, they did not consider that my emporium was the place to satisfy them. So I began to face the possibility of writing off all the expenditures on that side as a loss, and the only question was, whose? For beyond all controversy, I was now in debt. How much I would not know, dared not contemplate. But as my picture-framing was still a going concern, and subject to sudden spasmodic accessions of trade, I was always kept on the tenterhooks of expectation, I dare not say hope, that one big order might put things right. In this I was doubtless somewhat encouraged by a sympathetic fellow clerk, who used to suggest to me the possibility of my getting orders for frames to be exhibited, say, in all the stations from King's Cross to Aberdeen and just for fun we often used to speculate upon the profits to be obtained from such a contract. I knew perfectly well that I stood not the slightest chance of getting such a bit 
as such a contract would be, but I felt that it could cost nothing to build a castle or two upon its possibilities, and so I did. Indeed, I wanted some romance in my grey life now, for I was getting hemmed in on every side. The rates kept going up, the gas bills were crushing, sickness was perennial with us owing to the bad drainage of the house, and to make matters very much worse, the structural conditions of the place rendered it barely habitable. The landlord would do nothing, and I could do nothing, towards making the house fit to live in, and in consequence, as he lived next door, our relations, as they say in the newspapers, were strained. I blamed him then, but now I repent that I did so, for he was a poor man also, and he must have often felt that his rent was in the greatest danger. And indeed it was, although I gratefully remember that I did pay him all that he was entitled to, not indeed without some slight coercion, but still I did pay. Fortunately for me, I had made the acquaintance of some religious bodies in the neighborhood, and I had now some employment for my Sundays. This was a prime necessity for me, for I had never been able to go to church in the ordinary accepted sense of the term. I wanted to be up and doing, and as I had been used to this for years, I felt the loss of it very much on coming to East Dulwich, and until I had made myself known and received invitations to speak in the open-air meetings, I was quite unhappy, for no matter how much else I had to do, this particular business seemed to be indispensable to my well-being, to supply a need that nothing else would. I suppose that many of our present-day members of Parliament owe their positions to the same compelling desire of holding forth to their fellows in the open-air forum, of seeing the effect that their oratory has upon their hearers. Now I am not going to replicate the experiences I have set down in The Apostle of the Southeast, but only to point out that this life of mine was, as you might say, triangular. First in point of importance, but not, I fear, in consideration, was the office, when I drew my regular recurring pay. Next the shop, which I never knew whether to class as an awful incubus or a pleasant recreation, it was both at times, and lastly the evangelistic work in the open air which claimed most of my Sundays. I might perhaps make up the square by bringing in my domestic life, but that would involve writing of details that are quite private, and so I leave that side to be assumed as a sort of leaven running through the whole lump. From which foregoing outlines it may be taken for granted that my life was fairly full, that I had no need to kill time. Yet so true is it, that the busiest people are always those who seem to have time at their disposal, that I managed to keep up my reading, not merely of books but newspapers, and followed all the events of the day with the keenest interest. But this was not, as it never has been, from the ardent desire to educate myself, and reach out ambitiously after something better than I was doing. If in all I have written hitherto there is one word that can be construed into a wainglorious asking for praise on account of my energy, my perseverance, my earnest desire to get on, and all the rest of the nauseous twaddle, I beg my readers to forgive me and to believe that I had not, 
never had, never can have, the slightest intention of posing in this manner. My apologia must be this. I worked hard because I was afraid of the consequences if I didn't. Not at all, because I was naturally industrious, energetic, or ingenious, for I know that I was none of these things, or rather that I had none of these fine qualities. I read whenever I could, whatever I could, because I loved reading for its own sake. And I read good stuff, because I had a natural distaste for rubbish. A good book could and can still make me forget all earthly ills, all my surroundings, in fact make me cry, and laugh, and wonder, while a bad book makes me absolutely ill if I persevere in reading it. To return to another development of my business as a picture-framer, consequent upon opening a shop, delightful people came in and talked, first about pictures and their frames, then about art in all its branches, which, by the way, necessitated me reading up art, and then by an easy transition to any subject in which they were interested at that particular time. Sometimes these breaks in the grayness of everyday life were welcome, and led to most useful acquaintanceships and friendships. But sometimes, when I had an order to finish and deliver for urgent reasons, I talked with a wild, preoccupied look and itching hands, longing to tell my suave interlocutor to go to Jehaman, or elsewhere, and let me get on with my work, yet not daring to do so for fear of offending a potential customer. Yet very often, when such a one had given an order for a one-and-ninepenny frame, and had gone away, my overwrought nerves refused to allow me to finish what I had at hand, because principally of the glass. Now, your born glass-cutter has no nerves, cannot have. In the nice handling of a diamond across a virgin sheet of fifteen-ounce glass, the slightest imaginative tremor may have fatal results, that is, as regards the profit to be made from clean-cutting. But this important matter must be much more particularly explained, for to me it has often meant the difference between profit and loss, to say nothing of the pains I endured by reason of my inability to swear. For only language, lurid, loud, and long, could relieve my laboring bosom, I felt sure, on many of these occasions. Be it known to you, then, that the ordinary picture-framer's class comes from Belgium in cases containing, I forget how many sheets each, about fifty inches long and thirty-six inches wide, and weighing roughly fifteen ounces to the square foot. The price per case varies continually, but it may be safely assumed that, given a skillful cutter, a retail price of tuppence halfpenny a square foot will yield a profit of about twenty-five per cent. Only, much of this glass has so many air bubbles in it, is so uneven in thickness, that it can only be used for pictures on the assumption that the customer will not mind a bubble giving a sinister twist to some character's eye in the picture, or, in certain lights, a series of blotches upon the whole scene. It is really window glass, but when Christmas number plates must be framed in competition for about eighteen pence each, no poor framer can afford to regard trifles like that.
and then its uneven substance in such large sheets makes the manipulation of it a matter of extreme difficulty except to those in constant practice and with highly trained skill. Now, very early in my occupation of a shop, I learned that I must give up my old fiddling system of buying my glass ready-cut in Westminster and carrying it home, for many reasons, not the least of these being that I got no profit out of it. So I bought a diamond for twelve and sixpence and happened to get a very good one. Then I ordered a case of glass, and unconsciously with it I received a stock of trouble out of all proportion to any profit I was ever likely to make. Nothing that I ever undertook gave me so many tremors, cost me so much sweat, as did this truly diabolical business of glass-cutting. The rough case in which the sheets came, standing on its edge at the end of the shop, was to me the abode of devils. I approached it trembling, drew out a great wavering sheet, and lifted it on to the sloping table covered with bays which I had made. If I got it there all right, I heaved a great sigh of relief, and usually went about some other job for a little while to steady my nerves before tackling the most important business of cutting. That is, if there was no one waiting for a square. If there was, although my mouth was dry and my heart was thumping furiously against my ribs, I had perforce to assure a jaunty air and even, God help me, hum a tune while my teeth almost chattered. Conscious doth make cowards of us all. But so does poverty and dread of loss which can be ill-born, and I will back poverty to be the greater maker of cowards. I know it will be thought that I am making a lot of this trivial matter, but I solemnly declare that during my seafaring career, in the presence very often of the most appalling dangers, I have never felt the sickness of heart that has come over me when one of the huge sheets of glass has, despite all my care, fallen in a heap of tinkling fragments from my shaking hands. I have many memories of painful endurance connected with glass, but one stands out prominently from all the rest. It was on a Friday, and I had a rather large order in hand, which, if I got in that night, I might reasonably hope to get the money for on Saturday, and so be ready for that rapid reoccurring bugbear Saturday night. I had three original sheets of glass left in the case, ample to fill the order I had in hand, even with a little more than my average allowance of accidents. I was singing blithely at my work when the tell-tale bell over the shop door announced a customer. With a sigh, I laid down my tools, for in the midst of a job like that at nine o'clock at night I dreaded interruption, the more that I usually found it profitless, trivial, and annoying. I found a man in the shop twiddling a piece of string in his fingers, and my heart sank, for I knew that meant glass-cutting. My customers for glass nearly always bringing their dimensions on pieces of string. He asked me quietly for a strip of glass that size, throwing the string on the counter, that size being four feet long by four and a half inches wide. For one moment I meditated 
telling him to go elsewhere, but an infernal spasm of pride came to me for my undoing, and assuming an air of nonchalance to hide my smouldering rage, I drew out the first of my three sheets and laid it on the operating table. I laid the cutting laths on it and drew my diamond along its surface for about a foot, when, click, it cracked diagonally across. There was a cry of sympathy from my enemy, but without a word I removed the pieces and drew out another sheet. That literally fell to fragments as I was lifting it on the table. Now my nerves were fretted to fiddle-strings. But with the calmness of despair, I laid hold of the third and last sheet, taking absolutely no heed of such remarks which the man was making behind me. I got that on the table all right, and cut the strip off, but as I was handing it to him, it fell in three pieces. I went on to cut another strip, and the remainder cracked in two lines, making it almost useless for any purpose. Then, almost blind and deaf with suppressed rage and misery, I turned to my customer, saying in a queer-sounding voice, I've got no more glass to break. You'll have to go somewhere else. And then he said something. I don't know what it was, but I suddenly lost control of myself and poured forth my sentiments. I was wrong, unjust, and rude, for it was certainly no fault of his, and I have no excuse whatever. But, oh, it was hard to have to spoil six or seven shillings worth of glass, to have ruined my chance of completing the order I had in hand, and, as far as I could see, to have jeopardized the poor kid's Sunday dinner, which was the unkindest stroke of all. He had no sooner gone, with his measly sixpence still in his pocket, than I shut up the shop, put away my tools, turned out the gas, and went to bed with a book. But it was long ere I could make any sense out of the printed characters. They all danced amid a glittering halo of broken glass. I had made several spasmodic efforts next day to overtake the difficulty which had fallen in my way. But unsuccessfully, and at 9 p.m., having done all I could towards the order, short of getting the glass for it, was standing disconsolately by my bench, fingering in my trousers pocket a shilling and a few coppers, all I had on a Saturday night to get the things in, as we say, for Sunday. Suddenly there came shrilling up the stairs a cheerful whistle, four notes of the ascending diatonic scale, the signal of my inestimable chum Bob from the library over the way. It was literally what the Hindus call a hawadili, a heart-lifter, whenever I heard it, but never more so than now. I gave the response, and he came bounding up, full of beans as usual. Well, old stick, ow! And then he stopped. My haggard look, I suppose, daunted him. What's up, then? he queried. Broke all your glass? I nodded gloomily, and then, because I was selfish and full of my own trouble, I burst out and told him all. He listened in silence, but with a face full of sympathy, and when he had finished he said, thrusting his hands down deep into his pockets, "'That's too bad. I even got but three bob myself, but wait a bit. 
I believe I can touch Kerwin for a quid till payday. I'll be back in a minute. And he was gone. He seemed to be back almost immediately with a joyful face shouting, All right, old man, here's after plunder, holding out half a sovereign to me. Did I take it? Certainly I did. The possibility of not doing so never occurred to me, for I knew even then that I would do the same as Bob had done had I the opportunity. Yes, I took the money, and in a few minutes had laid in my supplies for Sunday with an easy mind, but without extravagance. This which is noted as if it might be an extraordinary occurrence was nothing of the sort. Something similar happened to many times. Indeed, it was a fair sample of the friendship I enjoyed with this particular man, a true fellowship with which I am glad to maintain as a sample of the goodwill existing between chums, and is far removed from the cold-blooded so-called charity of the majority of those who have great possessions as can well be. If I dared, I would like to add to it by giving some instances of similar kindness received from one or two others, not perhaps quite so intimate, but quite as kindly meant and as spontaneously offered. Only, alas, I know that to be more explicit upon this head would be to offend those generous hearts most grievously. They belong to the small select class who hate the idea of their left hand knowing what their right hand does. Above all creeds, they yet practically obey the highest of all, and do their good deeds with a shamefaced shrinking from publicity that is simply inexplicable to those whose names figure so prominently in subscription lists. Amidst all the memories of that strenuous time, which cluster so thickly around me as I write, none are more delightful than these, of the sympathy and practical help I meet with from those who were almost as poor as myself. And, be it noted, not one of these dear friends were in sympathy with the work which lay nearest to my heart, the open-air preaching. They were not Christian brothers, nor did they feel at all inclined to come under my teaching. It is, I fear, a lurid commentary upon the way in which, within the churches, practical Christianity is followed up, that in all my extensive experience, most of the individual helping, the ready sympathy in practical ways for those in trouble, has come from unbelievers, as they are contemptuously termed. An enormous amount of charity is dispensed by the churches in orthodox ways with due recognition of the donors, and often more than adequate reward to the agents who distribute. But, at whatever cost, I must affirm that it is nothing, either as regards to quantity, quality, and effectiveness, with that individually given by those who make no claim upon the name of Christian at all. What does this mean? To me it means that while the Christian says that he is unworthy of the least of the Father's mercies, he endeavors to find out before bestowing a halfpenny in charity that the recipient shall be worthy in his estimation of his charity. I speak as a man, but that is my opinion. End of chapter 9